welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and for front of the disclose, back to the Undressing Underground Podcast. Someday I will be able to say that intro without stuttering through it. Anyway, on today's show is noise musician Arvo Zylo. Arvo has played fucking everywhere, it seems like. He's a regular at noise fests, noise, yeah, I guess noise festivals throughout the country. He's performed with people like Ono and Brian Lewis Saunders and I don't even fucking know. He works on the Haunted Houses. He released that Tanetta cassette that he then had to burn all of because Tanetta's fucking insane. We talked a little bit about that before. And he's also on last week's Edgar Allan Poe cast, reading The Imp of the Perverse. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to that episode because everybody on it is awesome and they put a lot of work into sending those original versions of the work of Edgar Allan Poe that would also be released on cassette in the relatively near future thanks in large part to Arvo Zylo who has been walking me through the process anyway we talk about noise we talk about experimental music how he got into it why he does it how he does it and what he's done and that's about it i don't don't have a lot to say i guess oh except for next week come back and be playing an interview he did with travis from ono on his old radio show in chicago the delirious insomniac It's a fucking incredibly interesting interview. Travis has lived a fucking life. Guy's in his 60s, so he's a gay, half-black, half-Native American man that that went to Vietnam and lived in Mississippi in the 60s and 50s. I mean, fuck, just come back for that. But in the meantime, get to know Arvo. And after Arvo, we'll hear a little bit from... Laura Conifer about her Seismic Slaughter show in Indianapolis on November 14th. I'll wait for her to tell you about that. Before we get to anything, let's hear an ex- excerpt from Arvo Zylo's Blood Rhythms album, Assembly, which he'll explain more about in a little bit.
Hey, can you hear me? Oh, I hear you now, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I think the last one we tried, this didn't work, so I was a little bit worried. Um, yeah, cool. <laughs> is, it, is it Google Voice or something? Yeah, and I'm calling actually through my Gmail. So it's... Okay, yeah. Yeah, but it's easier to record. I've done that before. You have? Cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad it works. Uh, you know, I, I was actually thinking about using that at some point, too, for other things, but... Uh, cool. I'm glad it works for like art things or just personal use. Uh, no, I, to have uh, something connected to my phone number, but not my actual phone number given out. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, it's actually really, it's really helpful for that because then you also have like a separate voicemail that you can just like read, so you don't have to like waste your time too. Oh, cool! I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, There's like some robot that can. Uh, there's like a robot that can read your voicemails yeah, for you or something. I mean, it doesn't do a great job, but at least or your you, email. Yeah, <laughs> your vo- yeah, your voicemail, but it gives like an idea at least of what the person's saying. <laughs> cool. Well, just so you know, I am hearing a little bit of cutting out sounds, like uh, Wi-Fi interjection or something. Yeah, uh, but I can hear you fairly okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm hearing a tiny bit, but nothing like terrible yet. At least, if it gets too bad, I'll call you from my phone. Okay. Whatever you want to do. Okay. Um. Well, first off, I'm curious. I listened to you on like to your mix on that Greek podcast. Oh wow. Oh. Okay. What? Why, why is that not though? I, th- I thought it was really cool. Cool. I'm glad you dug it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty dark material, uh, most of it anyway. And uh, it's just some of my favorite stuff. I mean, um, I haven't, I, I decided to start selling as a label uh, online uh, much at all, you know, just checking my email more or less. And uh, my label only operated with uh, money orders and Xeroxes and, you know, <laughs> mailboxes and lots of postage stamps and, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, now I'm, I guess, uh, back on the internet and just kind of like floating around and looking at things and seeing what is going on. Uh, you know, I have I have read plenty of things, but um, as far as like engaging uh, the noise community, if I have to, if I have to use a word like that, <laughs> um, you know, I'm finding new podcasts and things like that popping up, and it just happened to be that. Uh, he mentioned in his last, I was looking at all his playlists because uh, seems like a cool guy, guy, guy in Greece. And mm-hmm. yeah, his theme of his, his podcast is um, uh, based in industrial music, but like with an emphasis on the, what he used the term nonconformist aspects of industrial music, which is to say, which is basically probably to say, you know, the origins of industrial music and not uh, the dance music that came from it pretty much. Right. So uh, that's kind of my bread and butter, and um, you know it was relatively easy to do. So did he find you, or did you find him? I found him. I mean, uh, as I said, he was posting in a chat forum about his podcast, and I went through his playlists and uh, sent him an email. I said, "Hey, this is great. You know, this is uh, here's a link to my band camp and blah blah blah. And if you ever need a guest, uh, feel free to let me know." And it just happened that he was going to start a series of podcasts uh, with guests. And 
you know, he 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 didn't really say that part. So I, I was the first person to be on his uh, guest series of podcasts. Huh. And so, like the stuff on there, like I don't know if I knew any of it. I know I loved the first track, the uh, of the uh, sleep recordings. Yeah, that's beautiful stuff. Um, it it's uh, Dealey Derbyshire. Mm-hmm. She did uh, a lot of stuff in England that never got released. Uh, one of those early electronic people from the 60s and there's these videos of her on YouTube where there's just these huge machines she's got this like laboratory of huge machines and they're all just basically there to you know one big metal machine that's like six feet tall is meant to do reverb and then there's this other machine that's meant to be tape loops and you know it's 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 like something out of the twilight zone but I recently discovered this record that is uh uh, apparently it was never released, and rumor has it uh, somebody put it up, you know, uh, on some file sharing site or something like that. Uh, and then there was a bootleg made of it, so I bought the LP, uh, the bootleg. I I was lucky enough to get a copy of it because it was only limited to 300 copies, but it looks great. It's like screen printed and stuff. And the same label is, uh, I think they're called, I can't remember the name of the label, but I think it's like Psychic Sounds or something like that. They also put out uh, an LP that was out of print since the 60s of uh, G. I. Gurdjieff, and I've got that one. It's just him playing harmonium in, like, 1949, and it's really great stuff. Well, so I'm curious, like, how exactly do you find all these different artists and obscure sort of things? Like, do you go... I mean, you mentioned you found the Greek podcast through that chat forum. Like, is that generally how you find things, or do you find it at, like, record stores or through a community somehow? Uh, well, artists on podcasts, and it's like, wow, where the hell did that guy come from? And you know, <laughs> then you look it up, and um, you know, I, when I before before I was buying it much on the internet, or, or, or I should say, before I was buying much outside of Amazon dot com, uh, you know, I just went to record stores, and um, you know, they would be able to special order certain things that were only available in Europe or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. There was even a time where you'd uh, there'd be a little computer. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was just like CD Warehouse or something. But they started having little computers by the register that you could type in certain artists and you know see if stuff is available or, or at least available for special order. And uh, at that time, some of that, uh, you know, in 2001 or something like that, you couldn't find anything about, uh, let's say, Alexander uh, Hockey. Uh, the guy from Einstein Neubauer. I didn't even know that he did solo work. And I, he did solo work in 1995, and I didn't even know about it. It wasn't on the Internet. But I found that in a CD warehouse on a computer, and I asked him to special, special order it. So I bought an obscure Einstein Neubauer-related uh, release that was self-released by the band in 1995 from CD warehouse of all places. <laughs> uh, you just kind of, you know, anything in life, it's just, you know, if you focus on something, it's going to expand. It's like, you know, you get interested in obscure music and you're going to find more obscure music. And Record stores are getting uh, a bit better. Um, it used to be that sort of uh, record labels would try to push certain things. And uh, it seemed to be that they had some way of uh, sort of uh, blackmailing uh, record labels or uh, record stores or something like that. It's like uh, somehow it's like okay, we've got this big selling artist that we know you want to carry, but if you're going to carry that, you're <laughs> going to have to also carry this thing that uh, nobody's heard of yet. And 
you know, that was their, some of their method of promotion. It's like, it's okay, if you want this uh, Depeche Mode record, you're going to have to carry these other, you know, uh, I don't know, lesser known dance artists or whatever. Uh, so now, um, you know, having had several years of bargain bins and stuff like that, record stores are just like, we're only going to carry what we want to sell. We, we don't have to worry about any of the other, the other stuff. We just, it's only what we want to sell. It's not, um, what, what we have to sell because we have that other stuff that we, we can sell, you know, mm -hmm. at so, least that's what I gather anyway from reading enough about music. Right. But so where did this interest start for you? Like, where did the interest in obscure sort of music start with you? Did it start with, like, more experimental sort of mainstream stuff or something? Um, when I was in high school, I didn't know anything about um, experimental music at all. Uh, I had no clue. Um, I I thought that, uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails was one of the <laughs> big geniuses about that, you know. Um, and... I, I incidentally, after I got out of high school, I gave up on doing visual art in, in a realistic sense. You know, like I, I did plenty of figure drawing and stuff. And I had a teacher that I didn't like, and he kept telling me I was doing everything wrong. And I said, "Hey, you know, I've been doing this since I was a kid. This is a drawing of a naked woman. That's a drawing <laughs> of a naked woman. That guy's drawing a naked woman. And you can't really tell me, you know, one is better than the other. One, you know." They're both representative, you know, from far away, of a pre-apt reproduction of a posing naked So, you know, it's like, well, what am I doing wrong? He's like, oh, your posture is all wrong, and the way the whole you're holding the charcoal is all wrong. And I just got sick of it. I said, you know, if I, if I want, um, if I want to uh, take anybody's advice, I'll take it from someone who didn't settle for a teaching job. <laughs> but around that time, I just like dove headfirst into experimental music. Um, and, and I mean, I didn't even, I still didn't know anything about experimental music, but I was in a band and we didn't have a place to practice and I had a drum kit, but my, my mother had moved and we no longer had a place to practice. Uh, so they had these drum machines and they had these electronics and stuff. And, um, I, I would thought, I honestly thought that I was making brand new music that nobody's ever done before. You know, I, I was experimenting and I had no idea that somebody else was doing it. So um, I, I started liking experimental music by creating experimental music and slowly realizing that other people have already done this like for decades. <laughs> <laughs> and how how did that happen? Like, did other people hear what you were doing and say like, "Oh, is this influenced by this person?" And you were like, "I don't know who the fuck that is." <laughs> um, for me, slowly discovering experimental music. Uh, I'll have to say that it was like, okay, uh, I listened to a teenage Atari Teenage Riot. I'm like, okay, well, uh, you know, there's one record that they have called 60 Second Wipeout. And, you know, it's not, it's like typically they're known for being uh, sort of danceable, what they call digital hardcore and stuff. But this this record is, uh, it's not terribly danceable. It's like, it's, it's very uh, discordant and uh, dissonant and messy. And hmm. some of the, some of the people that are in that band have, have made noise albums. I slowly got, got got around to that, and then you know, uh, if you ever heard of Bizarre Magazine in, in the '90s, Bizarre Magazine was—I mean, Bizarre Magazine now is probably just kind of like boring on porn or something. It's just about <laughs> uh, like cute girls doing weird things and posing in weird situations or whatever. But mm. in the '90s, Bizarre Magazine was 
really about the most bizarre stuff you could think of. And uh, they had a they had an article once on the weirdest artists or the most extreme artists or something like that. And that was it ended up being kind of like my Bible of favorite artists almost. Um, for instance, Science Suits and the Neubauten. You know, I'm reading about them using concrete mixers and <laughs> all kinds of construction equipment, and I thought that was great. And I read about the cramps, and somehow they were extreme, according to this article. But, um, you know, that doesn't really equate to experimental music, but yeah. stuff like that. Um, I think uh, there were some other industrial artists. I think there, there was like, I think Coil was in there or something like that. Coil is one of my favorite bands, uh, and they're very, very experimental, but they they spent much of their time being called something to the effect of avant-pop uh, industrial or something. Um, that's, that's the assessment that I read from reading their interviews. Is It's like heavily sample-based sample pop music, but it's really, really creative stuff. Um, and, you know, once you get into that milieu of, like, early industrial artist it's really easy you know um fetus is one of my favorite artists uh f-o-e-t-u-s mm-hmm. and uh, he started out being very experimental and you know experimenting with tape loops and stuff like that but he um he ended up making uh music all in his, in his studio in, in his own home studio and that was a very unusual thing in the early 80s um of course, he did go to proper studios and record, but uh, he composed basically by messing with loops, and he had all kinds of charts about uh, what kind of pitch is going to be comparable to what notes and stuff like that. So instead of playing instruments, he played tapes, and uh, you know that kind of whole vibe is something that I just crave. Uh, the the feeling of listening to somebody just going mad in a studio by themselves instead of like. You get this. You get this image of these guys just kind of like dicking around in the practice space or something. Um, it's like, okay, like what's going to be the best uh, harmony or blah blah blah. Instead, you have this one or one or two people just kind of spending hours messing with a single sound. Uh, <laughs> that that became the most appealing. Like whether it's experimental music or whether it's just you know pop music or, or metal or whatever it is, I, I, I kind of crave that feeling. I, I crave that sound. Because you could tell, you could just tell when somebody has like crafted their whole entire sound by themselves. So um, like even somebody like Skip Spence, like he's more like, I guess, he's like very 60s, like uh, folky, country, psychedelic, but that one album he did, he, I think he did it. He was in, Do you know Skip Spence? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of the song I really love from that one. Um but yeah, I found him because, incidentally off of a list of uh, like, it was actually a foolish list. Like, it's supposed to be the top fifty most drug-addled albums or something like that. But it kind of went, it kind of slowly went off the mark. But yeah, anyhow, I don't think he's yeah, Skip Spence was on there, and I just, you know, I love that music. But yeah. that's uh, it's not quite that experimental uh, in terms of like sound overall right. sound. It's just kind of a slightly outsider kind of record, but. Right, it's like I Daniel enjoy, Johnston, yeah. kind of. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. It's like Daniel Johnston, kind of. Uh, yeah, kind of pins him, you know, gets him in there, and that's cool because uh, he's he's got some good stuff. But the overall sound of a lot of his recordings don't do it for me. I think yeah. the album "Hi, How Are You" is uh, has a great sound to it, a really kind of melancholic, but like accidentally so mm-hmm. sound. Uh, 
but I, you know, I'm not thinking so much about outsiders as I'm thinking, like for instance, um, when I heard of, uh, and we're getting back to industrial and in a little bit more uh, of a pop sense, but it's like when I heard of the band or the act Pig, it's just one guy, and um, he. That was still pretty rare, you know. Um, he, he was definitely inspired by Fetus, but uh, he made his own sounds and used, used samplers, and he could sing pretty well, and he, he kind of crafted his own sound uh, based off of being inspired by Fetus. And incidentally, this guy, Raymond Watts, uh, in an interview I read that he said um, he, he only was interested in hearing like the sounds of bending plastic and stuff. He was just only interested in experimental music until he heard Fetus. And I think that's kind of like the way I feel about things. It's sort of like an overall sound. It's not so much about, oh, this guy can do crazy stuff with his synthesizer. Uh, and it's not so much about music as like, oh, that's a great riff or whatever. It's, it's about the whole entire sound. That's why I like 60s music, even if I don't necessarily, you know, if, if they remaster a certain 60s album, I, I'm more apt to think it's awful. I, I usually hate remastered 60s albums, like the Coasters, for instance. I have all their original uh i have all their original recordings on it you know they were they were pressed in analog but i, I can't i can't even bear to listen to uh their their the remastered albums on cd or whatever it is and it's not a, it's not an analog purist thing it's just that it has such a bizarre sound to it i mean you know you have these uh group vocalists uh pink flamingos are I'm sorry, the Flamingos are a perfect example of that. I mean, they they just used all these crazy echo chambers and stuff. If you hear them re-record, or, you know, if they were to have played live, that just wouldn't be there, that, that feeling wouldn't be there. So I'm not a big fan of, like, going to see any bands that are going to play stuff from the 60s because they were alive in the 60s. I mean, I'm not, you know, terribly interested in going to see the Colts. They're still around. I think they, you know... They seem to tour the casino circuit or something, but um, I really love the early records just because there's this really organic, warm sound to it. And you know, I'm not a, I'm not an audiophile. I just get off on like this bizarre sound that almost seems like it created itself because it was worked over so much, uh, but not in a perfectionist kind of way, just in a way that's like perfectly natural. Yeah. Like searching more for a feeling than of than a than a note or whatever, I guess. Like or like trying to get like the right rhythm or something. There's something more I don't know what it is about like just searching for something to hit that feeling more than to hit that perfection, I guess. Like the Yeah, yeah. And it, it it's um it is like art in a sense because if you draw a picture, you know, you can only draw for so long and then there's a certain point where if you do anything to it it's gonna get messed up. Yeah. There could be something wrong with it, you know? Um, and I think that's, you know, part of why Brian Eno came up with the concept of ambient music. I mean, he, I think he was in the hospital or something, and he overheard somebody, somebody's radio or, you know, whatever it was, elevator music or, or whatever. Yeah. And he decided to come up with, like, you know, just this distant uh, wave of sound that isn't so much about what's in the forefront as it is about, you know, a, a texture. Uh, and a texture could... Anybody can attach emotion to a texture, but it's it's almost like an unemotional approach to the texture. Uh, it, so it's kind of like it works on both sides of the brain, um, maybe. Yeah, um, I guess actually I realized what I was trying to say was like less about musicianship and more about whatever thing is in their head. I guess like Captain Beefheart or something even. Like, 
I guess there is musicianship in his music. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, with the case with Captain Briefheart, you know, that uh, Trout Mask Replica, it's like, I guess they did a whole bunch of acid and just <laughs> did the whole album in one night or something, but they never recorded it. So they spent years trying to recreate what they did on, in one night on acid. Oh, and uh, it, has, it has sort of like an element of, uh, you know, both sides. Like, you know, there's the obsessive side and then there's the freeform wild and, you know, total reckless abandoned side. Yeah. But, you know, Captain Beefheart was a great poet and I actually like, um, I like his more conventionally music musical stuff. I like his just kind of straight up blues pop stuff too. Yeah, like his later like stuff like I especially like his later stuff where he like just sort of mellowed out a little bit and so like there's all that all those like that weirdness is still there but it's more digestible in a way I guess so it's less like listening to I don't, I don't know how you describe Trout Mask replica, replica but uh, it's like just listening to music by a deranged person instead of listening to a deranged person being deranged I guess yeah yeah I mean there's a purity to it either way you know yeah. some people have said that he kind of sold out or whatever and I'm not enough of a biographer to really know, you know, and or even attempt to to try to even make any claims like that. But you know, um, with Trout Mask Replica, you know, he had that song Frownland. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it could have come up completely on the fly, but it's, it has this uh, really perfect, you know, symbolism to it. It's like, you know, it 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 it, it, it does what pop music does, but it also is like completely frenetic and insane. So. It, <laughs> you know, it's like it, it could be emotional, or it could be just like the cerebral mess that uh, very analytical people listen to. You know, uh, it works on both on both levels. That's why I appreciate it. You know, this this idea of, for instance, Frownland being a a place like yeah. you can be sad, uh, but you don't have to go there. You know, uh, you can you can. Uh, exist in any other plane but you don't have to go back to that frown land you know yeah crazy hippie stuff but you know it works on it works on several levels i mean this is the thing that's interesting about uh substance in music in general is that it can cater to the grown-up and it can t- cater to the the little kid in, in every person you know i i personally feel like you don't stop being a kid you know your 11 year old self is still there and your five-year-old self is still there and you're 20 year old self is still there it's uh it's like so you have to you don't have to but you can uh cater to different levels of the personal being you know and that's why i like you know that's what i like about that's what i look for in in music with substance i mean i'm um dancing is kind of like an afterthought at at that point <laughs> but you know, that works too sometimes so um I guess back to your own music. So did you start making experimental music when you were in that band? Or was it something you started doing on your own? Yeah, I, I immediately. Uh, I basically, in all honesty, uh, we were trying to make industrial music, like in the sense of uh, late 90s, you know. We're very inspired by Merlin Manson and Nine Inch Nails and uh, even the Electric Hellfire Club to some extent, you know, stuff like that. And, and we, we wanted, they wanted to train me to use the drum machine and do some programming because uh, they had recently run up their credit cards and, you know, bought these <laughs> things and they were just learning them themselves. Uh, and so, 
you know, they sat me down in front of it. And one night they sat me down in front of it when I was on acid. And <laughs> I spent about nine hours just messing with it. And, and I've just had this, you know, that, that's what I get. That's what I get out of it is just messing with something for like nine hours. You know, um, it's not even so much about like the composition as it is about this. It's just constantly, you know, okay, we make this pattern. And then what we do, what do we do after that? We have another pattern. It doesn't matter what, you know, it could go anywhere. Uh, so I, I, you know, it feels like a journey, uh, hopefully anyway. Uh, and, I, and I've had a fascination with complex rhythms in, in that sense and it, it, because, um, it, it has a groove element to it, but it's not meant to be danced to per se. Uh, and, and so I, I feel like I'm separate from a lot of uh, noise artists because I actually like rhythm a lot and it's not, it's not so much about rhythm. It's, it's, it's just like this complex repetition that uh, it's slightly changing and it's organic and you can uh, I like adding like 60 layers to something uh, of loops you know 60 layers of loops and then you know minus and addition and just having this sort of a travelogue of of sounds just morphing um, where other people you know that's too structured for them or, or maybe too um, cerebral for them they want, they want to be more free in a jazz sense or more free in, a, in a, a reckless abandon kind of sense. And I'm actually, it's almost like tr transcending the, the cerebral for me. It's like uh, being stuck in your head. Uh, you, you, when you're done, you don't feel stuck in your head anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that's kind of what works for me anyway. And I don't know what the listener gets out of it, but I, cra I crave that stuff. I mean... Um, when when people make compositions that sound like machines, I love it. There's, uh, and it's very rare. It's very hard for me to, you know, you can't Google that kind of stuff. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, I want to hear experimental music that sounds like a, a, a lawnmower run through a phaser pedal or something. <laughs> you know, you, you can't really find that very easily. But when I do find it, you know, uh, I think a lot of people just kind of overlook it and think it's lazy or something. But you get into it. I, I not only find it meditative, but I also find it kind of exhilarating. So you uh, like so that's kind of what sets me apart, I think. Where other people who discovered noise music, they were messing with feedback because they were trying to be in a punk band or <laughs> whatever. And and I, I didn't even discover feedback until 2010. I started using feedback in 2010. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's been a long while. So are you like externalizing some sense of anxiety? It sounds like or OCD or something. <laughs> Uh, no, no. Uh, when I say stuck in my head, it's like, um, I, I, I've always been kind of an observer. I, 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 uh, in a lot of situations I'm just watching and, um, you know, to, to work with electronics and, and to work with something that you're physically touching and moving, you're, you're not doing a lot, you're pushing buttons, you're twitching twiddling a little knobs or something, but, you know, it's kind of moving on its own, so when you have this, you have, especially during a live performance, when you've got a really live, loud PA or something, there's, there really is a point, uh, and I hate to use the word transcendence, because it's kind of overused, but there's a point where you're just kind of watching your body do this stuff, uh, and you're not really in control of it, you know, and that's, it's an exhilarating feeling, it's great. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what Michael Girard said about making music with swans he said you know there's a certain moment when you're uh you feel like you're uh within the lungs of god or something like that and i think you know 
I think that's pretty comparable to the experiences that I get from making experimental music. You know, it's not just about uh, venting my feelings or anything like that. I, in fact, if there's any, if there's ever any emotional content in in my music, it's uh, um, it's kind of coincidental. So it could be like intuitive more than it is about me just being like, okay, I'm sad about my girlfriend or whatever. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm channeling something from a, a previous period in my life without even realizing it. There's been a time where I've accidentally. Um, I mean, I was destroying presets, so it's like it's very non-musical. I'm taking all these jazz loops and just destroying them. I mean, <laughs> cutting them apart and stretching them and uh, changing the pitch and stuff like that. And I accidentally came upon, you know, the the, the riff from Inagata Davida, <laughs> and I thought it was great. But you know, I'm not going to try to say that I, I had some emotional, you know, emotional connection to to, to Inagata Davida, other than the fact that I think it's funny and I like that song. I don't think that the people who wrote that song had, you know, anything emotional really to communicate. I mean, they were just really high, and they started talking about uh, the Garden of Eden, but they were so high that they called it Inagata Davida. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, I imagine it's the same but, sort of thing with Skip Spence um, back on that album. is like, because in that one song, it just randomly turns into uh, Sunshine for Your Love at the end of it. Yeah, I'm wondering what those guys were on. I mean, I guess, well, you hand, know, I I guess it wasn't terribly unique at that time. I mean, there's a lot of people uh, doing long, drug-addled guitar solos and drum solos and stuff like that. But, but this was just him. Skip Spence, that was just him. Like, he made that album after he was in a mental hospital after a bad acid trip, and he just drove down. He bought a motorcycle and drove down to Nashville and recorded an album by himself. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I didn't know about the motorcycle, you know, the the mental hospital thing. I don't, actually, I didn't remember it. I probably read it somewhere, but I don't yeah. remember it. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I mean, you know, even with even with Iron Butterfly, though, I mean, I think they uh, they really caught a stride with their second album, Ball. That album is uh, there's something to it. There's there's something about uh, the whole thing that I think is really great. It's not just a collection of uh, songs with riffs and stuff. Um, there's a sort of beginning and an end to it. It's a, it has a conceptual kind of a pattern to it. Um, so, I mean, it, it doesn't need to be a solo artist, but Skip Spence is great. You know, there was uh, the Chicago Reader here in Chicago. It's a weekly paper. It's probably the biggest weekly paper. Um, they asked me in May, I think, to do uh, to tell them what's in my heavy rotation, like what, what I'm listening to a lot, what I'm obsessed with. And one of the things that I said was uh, that this guy who's now dead, and it's unfortunate, I only got to see him perform once, but everybody thought he was retarded. Uh, everybody thought he was a mental case, and, and you know he actually was in a nursing home. He was an older guy, a guy named Taiki. Hmm. Uh, I saw him play. He played with... Uh, an accordion for a while, an acoustic guitar. Some of it was acoustic, some of it he sang. And he wrote his own pop songs. Um, and it's very catchy, you know, emotional stuff. And, you know, it's very sweet music. And I really enjoy it. You know, the melodies were... The melody combined with the emotional subject matter really worked for me. Uh, but this guy... He went into a recording studio because there were so many, there were enough fans that wanted to drag him to a recording studio, and they even set up a, a backing band for him in the studio. And he's so 
obsessive that he kicked everybody out and recorded a whole record by himself. <laughs> and I, I was uh, desperate to find this thing, and I couldn't find it online. Any, I mean, I didn't even know his last name at the time. I mean, I couldn't find anything online. I asked my friend who uh, brought me to the show that one time, and uh, you know, I finally went back to the bar that he played at, and they gave me a CDR of it. I thought it was great, but <laughs> one of the things about the actual performance was that my friend was sitting next to me. He said, "You know, this guy, uh, this guy has something to him. He's got, uh, he's got some kind of, you know, psychic ability of some kind. It's not anything outspoken. It's not like he's going to tell you the future or anything." But every time I see him play, there's always this bizarre psychic phenomena. Like um, the first time I saw him play, not me, my friend, I'm saying, uh, he played, this guy started crying because he played the song that his mother used to sing to him when he was a kid or something like that, you know, something like that. Hmm. And just as he was saying that to me, he said, you know, he hasn't played my favorite song that I, I always love to hear him play. Um... And immediately, this, he was on an instrumental medley with his accordion anyway. Immediately, the guy started playing that song, uh, the instrument, the instrumental to that song. And we were not within earshot. And I, don't, I, I kind of think that this guy probably didn't have very good hearing. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there is something to that, those isolated uh, kind of uh, mental case situations. There's always... a. Uh, there's always a check and balance with that kind of thing. You know, when somebody has damage in one area of the brain, it, it, uh, the rest of the brain tends to overcompensate, and sometimes remarkable things happen. Hmm. Wait, wh how did we get to that story? Sorry. <laughs> we were, you, were talking about, um, you were talking about Skip Spence and how he went to the mental hospital and stuff. I mean, maybe he was driven to... I mean, he rode a motorcycle to, to a studio and recorded a record by himself. I mean... Maybe he got to practice a lot in the mental hospital, but maybe he just had this crazy intuitive feeling about, you know, I need to record a record right now. Yeah, you know? I, I think uh, that was the case because he was, um, he was really, he was originally in Mopey Grape. I think is that their name, Moby, Mopey or Moby Grape? I'm not familiar. Oh, okay. They were a band in the '60s, and then um, this like, uh, what do you call it, woman? Uh, like a psychic woman, like like the kind with the, like the crystal ball sort of thing. Uh, he was taking uh -huh. he was taking acid with her, and then she convinced him that the other members of the band were possessed by the devil. So he took an axe and went and started breaking down the singer's door in the hotel room, and then he got locked up. This is in upstate New York, and then once he got out, he just bought a motorcycle. And the legend has it, at least, that he drove down from upstate New York to Nashville still wearing his it's hospital spent. gown. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's not cool, but, you know, yeah. that's, that's, that's a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, so, I'm, I'm glad he didn't kill anybody so he could yeah, write that record. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> uh, I, I forgot how we, get, we got on that in the first place, but I guess... um. So, you were you said you were originally in that band when you were when you started making experimental music, um, and uh, so how did you segue from like the more industrial stuff into like what you're doing now? Was it like when you got the uh, it wasn't a Cassie you you recorded a uh, that recent album on well, uh, the sequencer stuff? Yeah. Well, those guys were using uh, electrodes and stuff, but they also eventually started buying. A, uh, they bought a sequencer, and so I was still in the band messing with the sequencer. And you know, we 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 had these big ideas. I mean, my friend ended up uh, building a studio, and we tried to get it going. You know, um, 
And, and I, so I learned that sequencer, and then I got uh, my own sequencer, and I still have it. I still have, you know, I've, I've got three of them now, uh, three of the same model. Uh, but it's um, it, it, that that machine is is great because you can make music with it. You can get out a basic idea. It's almost like a sketch pad with actual music. But <laughs> there's so much potential for noise, uh, you know, malfunctions and. Um, if you don't want to even play a note, you can just take presets and destroy them. <laughs> and I've I've gotten pretty good at that. Um, I've, I've made some pretty good sounds with just like screwing up a jazz loop um, or, or a jazz pattern with several different, you know, cheesy saxophone patterns on it. Um, it, it just, you know, the more that I tried to make music because I wanted to actually make music, the more I tried, the more I just got crazy with it. You know, I, I would start out with a beat, and it would just go completely insane from there. And I, I got, I became more interested in what kind of mistakes I could make and what kind of crazy sounds I could get this thing to do than than uh, making music with with melodies and stuff that people could play guitar over and <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, it's just frustrating for my friends for this band because they didn't want to do any of that stuff at all. I mean, I was at a before I knew anybody in the experimental uh, community of any kind, I was very alone. I, there was nobody. There was nobody that, that was liking what I was doing. And some of it was, you know, you've heard it. The, the tape, the tape that you've got is um, everything was done before 2003, mm-hmm. or everything was done in 2003 or before. And 2003 was when I actually pretty much discovered solidly experimental music. I mean, I had known a little bit about Einstein Neubauten and, you know, the aforementioned artists, a little bit of the here and a little bit there, but, you know, in 2003 was when I heard about Mertzbau and Wolf Eyes and all the, you know, actual noise artists who are going around touring and stuff, you know, the stuff that's actually happening in real time and not just this relic that I read about, in, you know, in a magazine in the 90s. Right. You know, stuff that's actually happening that I can go out and experience in real life. Uh, so that was a changing thing for me, but I still was was making uh, my own thing. I was not, I was never able to uh, impersonate anybody. It, it was it was frustrating, but it was kind of nice because I can't say that I copied somebody because I couldn't copy them if I tried. I certainly did try. <laughs> you know, I, I tried to do a cover of a ministry song and I just failed horribly. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, what kept you going all that time when you were just by yourself, just making all this music that no one liked besides you? Fetus and Coil. Really? Those, those were the only two. Uh, those two artists, I listened to them. I'm like, okay, these these are my homeboys. Uh, you know, um, I may not know anybody like that in real life, but you know, because these guys exist, um, I can keep going. So and, uh, was there like a hope eventually? Or- I started. To- what, Go ahead. Was like the hope during that period that you were going to find a scene eventually, or was it just like, I'm just going to keep doing this because I enjoy it? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this is narcissistic or not, but I really thought that it was that nobody else was doing it and it was going to be big. You know, <laughs> I really thought that there was, I just need to find a label. And uh, this label is going to be like, wow, this stuff is the craziest shit in the world. And, you know, <laughs> and, and there was going to be. Uh, somebody who would, uh, you know, sell the records and maybe put me on tour or whatever the case may be. I, you know, you have to put it in perspective. I was 22 at yeah. the latest. You know, when I was in 2003, I was 22 years old. 
so I, I, I had no idea. Um, I had only bought records at record stores, and I shouldn't even say records. I bought cassettes at, at record stores, and, uh, you know, if, if I had to, I'd buy CDs. Right. I, I also worked at a, a UCD store, so, I mean, you know, I was very much into music, but I had no idea of what was going on in, in, in contemporary terms because I was only buying CDs and cassettes, and <laughs> I had no idea about mail order or, you know, anything else. So, um, you know, it was either you get on a label or you just make stuff and give it to your friends. That's just what I thought I had to do. Right. And that's what it seemed, you know, that's what it seemed to be is, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know any punk bands that were on labels. So I just assumed that you had to be on a bigger label in order to get anything done, you know, uh, in order to get people to listen to your music, either strangers. Um, which you know, both when I, when I discovered what the reality is like, it's like it was like both invigorating and kind of disappointing. Is like you know, there's not this big label that's going to put you on tour, but also there are these labels that are going to maybe you know whatever do 50 copies of something and get strangers to listen to it, and you know that's and you can do whatever you want, and it's going to take a um, short period of time, relatively speaking, to get released and stuff like that. So you know. To, to realize that I didn't have to fight against the tide and be this experimental artist that's uh, trying to get on Warner Brothers or whatever, uh, or even Load Records for that matter. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was both empowering and just kind of like, okay, well, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this for a living, so I might as well be totally free about it. Hmm. And so at what point did you start, like playing shows was that before or after you started realizing there was a scene like were you doing punk shows or anything i was in a punk band for a while i mean when i had a sequencer i uh i, I knew enough about playing keys that i can play to a punk you know chord whatever <laughs> uh i still don't know anything about real music that much i mean <laughs> but i was able to play you know if they told me what key it was in it's like okay i can figure this out i mean they actually taught me some of this stuff uh, when I was playing in the wrong key, they're like, "Okay, you got to. This is an A, and uh, you know." <laughs> and they would just write down the notes, and they, you know, I had a, I had a keyboard that uh, they wrote all the, they wrote like A, B, C, D, E. You know, <laughs> they wrote them all on the kind of white keys, so I, I can, I can kind of do whatever I want. I can use whatever octave I wanted, and you know, stuff like that. But eventually, the, the drummer of that band went insane, and and it was a number of drummers. They just the drummers wouldn't stay. Uh, for one reason or another, and eventually we started thinking about using my sequencer as a drum machine, and nobody liked that idea. And uh, around that time, I also was just like, okay, well, I, you know, if you don't want me to play keys, but I guess you know, instead of playing keys on every song, why don't I take a, a fan unit that I've got and stick some metal stuff into it, and you know, make it override and smoke, and you know, we can mic that, and that'll be the, the, the solo for this song. And, and they're just like, no, we don't, we don't want to do that stuff. <laughs> like, we don't want to sound like Big Black. We don't want to do any of this experimental shit. So, uh, you know, that didn't last too long. And I, I ended up just being for a long time in this kind of a, a middle ground where I can work with music, but um, I can also do total noise. And I kind of wanted to keep it organic and, and do whatever came out. And, you know, it, it, it still is kind of like that. It's, it's like, it's, 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 it's been much more noisy since I knew what noise was and what I could do with it. But, 
um, it's basically been like that, where it's like, if, if music happens, that's fine, it's great. But if music <laughs> doesn't happen, that's even better, because that makes me even more free about it. And so what happened that you started, like, getting to do shows and, like, started playing oh, at, like, okay. noise well, festivals I, and stuff? I, I was I was living in a, in a punk house that pretty much became a squat, but... Um, <laughs> The first show I played, uh, you know, I, I didn't know, know I, I knew about Dadaism. I knew about, uh, <laughs> you know, Marcel Duchamp and stuff. Yeah. I, did, I still didn't know a whole lot about noise, um, but the concept of Dadaism is, can be applied to, you know, audio and public performance. I didn't know anything about any of the futurists or anything like that, like Luigi Rosolo or anything like that, but... Uh, the first performance I did, I, I tried to dress as a quintessential rock star. Uh, <laughs> I, I wore a dress and I had leather gloves and, and uh, a, a, a mohawk that was made out of electric tape and you know state trooper <laughs> glasses. And um, instead of actually doing anything on stage or you know in this person's front room, um, we had these huge amplifiers that they let me borrow. Uh, I mean, they were guitar amplifiers, and they had so much inherent distortion, and they were just extremely loud. They were really big, and the front room was really small. And I made this arrangement for nothing but applause sounds on my sequencer, and it was just an applause. It was like, you know, um, I was applauding myself, uh, basically. I, I just stood there smoking cigarettes, and I got pushed the button and stood there smoking cigarettes in my goofy outfit, and... Uh, it was it was just so loud. I mean, the cops were called, but it was just applause. It was like nobody was going to clap for me, so I'm going to make the applause myself. Wait, so were you actually <laughs> playing music at this, or were you just playing applause and then staring at them? I was just sitting on the floor. I mean, I was staring. You know, I was wearing sunglasses, so right. I, I, I could have had my eyes closed. But <laughs> you know, um, I was standing for a while, and then I just started sitting on the ground. And then you know, when I felt like, I mean, nobody stopped me when it. When, it, when I felt like I was done, I just pushed the stop button. Because <laughs> it was set up where it was like uh, different time signatures of different layers of applause. Um, so, you know, if you keep playing different time signatures looped, you're going to get different rhythms. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when you have like 16 different layers of uh, applause and they're all set, one of them is set to be 7-4, the other one is set to be 3-4. One of them is uh, 200 times slower, the other one is 65% faster blah 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 you're you're going to have just different rhythms that kind of uh keep shifting and changing so so when you... it was it definitely wasn't mana i mean to some people i'm sure it was me i was just sitting there kind of listening to it <laughs> and just letting it go but so when you go into a piece do you ne do you not know what it's going to sound like for several years i only performed with my sequencer and it wasn't even necessarily uh, strictly a performance. I would compose everything uh, without sleeping. I wouldn't <laughs> stop until it was done. And it was sort of a part of a performative element that nobody knew about. Um, I would work for 27 hours on a piece. And it might only be 10 minutes long, but I would work for 27 hours straight. And then I'd show up to the venue exhausted. And maybe I'd sit in a chair and read a book or something um, <laughs> while, while I was playing. Uh, that, that was a, that was like a you know an era. Uh, there there were other times where I'd done vocals and uh, where I improvised on my sequencer. There's plenty of times where I improvised on my sequencer. I could just improvise on that thing forever. But um, 
a lot of times it was like that. And it, it's not, it's, you know, it wasn't about the pure sound either. It was just about like sort of a journey. So it, it's, it's kind of different with, you know, with, with people who are more pure uh, noise artists. It's not about like the beginning or the end. It's just harsh noise or, or whatever the case may be, right. you know, uh, being totally free and all that for me is about like, okay, I, I can, tell when this thing done uh maybe that makes me a pretentious artist or whatever but you know uh the stuff is going to inherently have a beginning or an end yeah and uh you know it, it's just kind of an exercise in intuition it, it, it is for anybody that's experimental i should say but uh for for me maybe uh more so in some respects because it's like i didn't want to just play destroyed uh you know Cuban music or something. I wanted to actually build something in real time and uh, maybe destroy it then. So, uh, so when you know, you, it was uh, what's that? Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say. So, like when you compose something, it's more about exploring a concept than it is like uh, following through with an idea. I guess like it's not like you're writing anything beforehand. You're just like you have a concept of what you want to know what sounds like, and then you go ahead and do that? I never am able to do that. I'm never able to sit down and be like, I know what I want to yeah. do. Uh, right. I sit down with a blank slate, and, um, and I, I just, I know when, I know when it's finished. Uh, I mean, like the applause thing, I, like obviously you're going into the piece with like some idea of what you want to explore at least, right? If, I, if I'm on my sequencer, it, it's it's not the case. It's really not the case. It's like okay, let's see what happens. Uh, if I'm if I'm, I mean, I don't always work on my sequencer, but it, you know, a lot of times it's uh, like okay, I just went on the internet and downloaded a bunch of samples of. This is what this is recent work that I'm working on. Uh, I went on the internet and downloaded a bunch of samples of uh, engines failing. There's like <laughs> tons of websites where you can just find samples of people with, you know, broken cylinders or whatever. And so I got a bunch of samples of that, and it's like, okay, let's see what we can do now. There's no, like, there's no writer, this is what I've got, and this is what we're going to, we're, we're going to see what happens. What sparked um, that interest, exactly? <laughs> the interest of uh, engines or repetition? or Well, the, of the, yeah, the engines. Like, I, I, sort of get, I think I've sort of got, like, what the interest of repetition is. But um, like why? Like what causes you to explore something like like failed engines? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember. Probably <laughs> I don't remember. But I've always liked machine sounds. I mean, one mm -hmm. of the first thing I did on my sequencer was to try to emulate a machine. And uh, volume two, or no, I'm sorry, volume three is going to have uh, those experiments, like me taking basically drum machine sounds and making several different layers of really tightly knit uh, loops and just trying to emulate machines um, with, with, you know, cheap uh, cowbell sounds or whatever. <laughs> and um, I, I can't tell you why. I, I mean, you know, I could say, you know, when I was a, when I was a child, I was walking through this tunnel. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not going to make up stuff. <laughs> well, I, I didn't mean like going all the way back like a therapist. I just meant like, like what, like why that? <laughs> like, just like, there, like that's a very specific thing to look up. <laughs> it's like a failed uh, engine or something. Like, is there like, well, is there usually something that sparks you know, that? Like something in your life? That's the, that's the greatest thing about the noise community. 
Ruby or whatever, you know, uh, the chat forums and all that is that I, I just happen to, and this is, you know, I just happen to already be doing this and I've found that there are other people that are interested in this stuff. And so I've just got a lot more food of thought, food for thought. You know, I, I didn't even know, but there's this series of uh, records from the 60s just recorded trains. They recorded locomotives <laughs> like steam engines, you know, right. uh, because they were on their way out, you know, so it was like an archival, uh, you know, antiquated sound that, you know, they knew it was going to be novel because they're not going to, you know, you can't, you can't just make a locomotive for the sake of sound. So they're, they're <laughs> taking these things and recording them. And, you know, I, I, uh, I bought a couple, I haven't got them in the mail yet, but, you know, even a, there's even a, a, a seven inch called trains in trouble where they recorded trains that were about to die. Like just, you know, screeching, failing sounds of a, of a locomotive. Hmm. And that's just absolutely thrilling to me. I can't, I can't tell you why <laughs> I wish I could, but, um, you know, it, it, it sets me apart from a lot of people because, uh, whatever people are doing, they're trying to sort of capture a rock and roll, like total reckless punk rock abandoned stuff. And for me, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm autistic or something. I don't know, <laughs> but I've always just really, really liked repetition. Yeah. Um, uh, when it's a good sound, it's like, I don't want, I don't want it to change. I don't want a chorus. I don't want to break down. I just want this like chugging sound forever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but I put out a locked groove record and I, I, uh, it was a seven inch. It was a compilation. It was a bunch of different artists, but, uh, I didn't know um, I, I didn't know that anybody had ever done that before. Of course, there are other people who have put out locked groove, you know, records with purely locked grooves on it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know about that until I was finally putting this thing together in 2007 or eight or so. Um, for for five years or so, I thought that I could do a locked groove record that had 30 second loop, long loops on it. And of course, it's impossible. <laughs> uh, the the locked groove is 1.8 seconds. And it, it will not be any longer or shorter. Hmm. You know, you can you can set it to forty five RPM or whatever, but it it's going to be one point eight seconds. Right. And it still confuses me. I, I still I, I still have no idea. It's like why would a locked groove be the same length when you have every circle being a different distance from the center of it? You know. So point. it's like, wouldn't it be that maybe on an LP a locked groove, your first locked groove would need to be like maybe 2.5 seconds. And then the, the last lock groove is the closest to the center, the closest to the run out, you know, the label and everything. Wouldn't that be like one second or something? Do you because think like, like the needle you know, slows the, down? The diameter of a circle, right? Yeah. <laughs> it still confuses me. But, you know, anyhow, a lock groove is 1.8 seconds, and that's where <laughs> I found that other people were doing lock grooves when I put out my own little record with, with uh, people that I found on the Internet. It's like... 2003 was when I found out what noise music was, and 2007 or 8 was when I found out that there were people doing mail order and, you know, doing really obscure mailing lists. And, um, you know, that was when I found out that I couldn't special order anything I wanted at a record store. You know, I had to hunt it down and find some guy that's doing cassettes limited to 20 copies in France or something. Um <laughs> So, I mean, that was, things are still kind of young for me as far as, like, being a, a noise artist with other noise people in mind. You know, it's only been about seven years where I've known much about touring acts and, uh, and much outside of the Chicago, you know, whatever is happening in, in noise or experiment 
Capitol in Chicago. Hmm. But it's always been, you know, it's like, in 2003, I was like, okay, I'm going to put a lot groove record and all these loops are going to be like 30 <laughs> seconds long. It's really going to be great. And, you know, and again, I found out that I wasn't the genius and everybody else, has, <laughs> people have already thought of this before. <laughs> so it's good. It's like, okay, I get to, I get to hunt this stuff down. And, you know, I don't know, it's bad because it's like, it's not unique. And, yeah. You know, so what? Yeah, I definitely <laughs> I don't know. That. It's still, you know. I definitely know that feeling from different things I've tried over the years with film or music or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's it's like I make music that I don't... I mean, if I make music, I, I, I won't really put out anything that I think has really been done before. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly done before. You know, I could, I could definitely point to different elements that, you know, something is going to sound kind of like or whatever. But um, sometimes I hear I hear something in my head, and it's like, well, is it in my CD collection? You know, can I play that right now? And it's like, no, no, it's, it's in my head. And, um, you know, maybe I can sit down and see what happens with my sequencer, or I can get some samples down and try to figure that out. But um, generally, it's like... Sometimes I get an, a, a, a song in my head, and it's not really a song. It's actually an idea. It's like maybe it did come from somewhere, but maybe it's intuition, or maybe it's just inspiration, or I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I I get that. I mind more of usually like I'm chasing a feeling. Like I want something like uh like I'm always chasing, I guess, like the feelings I got like watching Tim Burton movies when I was a little kid, like Batman and Night Before Christmas and stuff. Even though he didn't direct that, but whatever, it's another. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, I could get that. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I'm not. The thing is, is that I just kind of like, I've always had this thing where it's um, I, I do that too. There's like a there's an end goal in me in mind, right? Yeah. But when I sit down in front of uh, something it's like I have to just be free and let yeah. anything happen. Um, and eventually I'll get what I want, but I, I can't like focus and, you know, force it and just be like, okay, it needs to be in the key A. And, you know, I, I, I can't think like that. So, yeah. I mean, when I say that, um, it's hard for people to believe, but I've got hundreds of hours. I mean, I've got so much hours of work that I, <laughs> I won't release because it's just, unnecessary for me to release it because yeah, it's just like a, a stage of it's a series of steps to getting to what I wanted to do and, and what I wanted to do was to communicate some abstract concept through sound that uh, is, is maybe maybe it can be emotional for some people and that's fine I'm not trying to be like anti-emotional <laughs> or anti-human but it, it's just something like almost like something that can be outside of the context of 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 music, um, right. where it's like it's not it's not extreme or it's not uh, mediocre. It's just kind of this crazy thing that made itself. I, I mean, I, I go for that feeling. Yeah. But you know, I, especially now that I do vocal work, um, I mean, I wish you would have saw me the year before you first <laughs> saw me, uh, because when I, you know, when you saw me, I was doing ambient work with just uh, mic objects and my sequencer. But before that, it was all vocal work. I mean, it was, um, I mean, not entirely vocal work, but it was stuff that 
had lyrics and um right. I performed for an hour, I performed for an hour straight and it was just like screaming and well, you I, know um I, I put that in a documentary that, like I, f- I found some footage of that on YouTube and I put that in a documentary to give more of a context of who you are while you were explaining your background in it um yeah I mean that's even that stuff is pretty old it's like from 2010 <laughs> I mean since then I've uh I've I've built on things and I've in all honesty I've lost some things but um right. The the idea of just being like, okay, how am I going to deliver vocals over uh, noise? Whoa, what just happened? Hey. Hey, uh, I don't know, maybe your uh, program sets it to hang up immediately after an hour or something? Yeah, I don't know, that's weird, it was, it was like an hour. <laughs> it was like almost exactly an hour. Yeah, that was very Do you good. want to continue? Yeah, just for like a few minutes anyway, because we have been talking for about an hour, and I have to fit in Laura after uh, our conversation. Oh, cool. Uh, but I guess just like real quick, um, I guess my last question would really be, because this is related to me again, <laughs> um, is like one thing I noticed when I'm making short films, I haven't done it in a while, but like I'm usually, there's like the feeling a lot of times can just come in a moment. Like when I made this one short uh I think I forget what's called. I think it's Manic Pixie and the Dream Girls about like a fake uh, sort of glam rock artist that came back in time, or was reincarnated or something. Anyway, there's this one scene. I have this, um, I have this guy from my class who's like this ex linebacker. So he's like this giant, like two or three hundred pound black guy, like but like beefy, not like just fat or anything. And I have him staring into a mirror in, a, uh, staring into a fisheye lens that's set up in front of the mirror in the bathroom, and then he's starts applying uh my girlfriend's makeup in like the most random nonsensical way possible just like i had to do whatever he wanted and i have a distracted jill wrote that's like very stooges like early stooges meditative like just sort of end Uh yeah like i can't explain what the feeling it is and i can't explain what i thought it was going to be when i went into it oh and it's and i have a it's all purple too it's not like uh it's like a purple sort of tint to it because i couldn't get a purple light in there um but, like, the thing people came out of with that, like, that's the thing people took away from that from that short film is, like, they just, they, they remember that scene, they remember that they felt something toward it that they couldn't even really articulate. <laughs> like, there's, like, it's disturbing, but it's funny, and it's weird. Um, but, like, do you find, like, when you're making a song, is there, like, a moment that you're, like, the most happy with, or is it just... You talk a lot about uh, repetition, so it's like, is it the piece as a whole, or do you find like there are still moments despite not having a chorus or anything? Um, it, it, it's tough to say because I'm uh, in a period of of uh, creative creativity or whatever that uh, I'm allowing myself to not be uh, trying to have everything be an epic masterpiece, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I understand exactly where you're coming from, for sure. I mean, I haven't done video work because I don't know how, but I have <laughs> tons of ideas, and I won't, I won't settle for anything less than, than these ideas. And, you know, they, they require CGI or, like, stop <laughs> animation uh, or something like that. It's, yeah. like, really intensive. Uh, but I won't have it be any other way. And so it's like, I know what you're saying when you have an end goal and you need to achieve it. Uh, I've done that, you know, with plenty of things. Uh, but I can't really call them songs because it's like, it's almost like an imaginary soundtrack, kind of like almost what you're saying, where it's uh, it's like people just remember certain things. Yeah. And that's kind of the goal. It's like you create an atmosphere, and it's not like you're going to remember the beginning or the end. It's just like it's an atmosphere that gives you an impression that you remember. Um, 
I remember, you know, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I remember the one, there's a short film that I watched of yours where it's like you're kind of in drag and you're, <laughs> you're in this like sex girdle thing that's hanging from a door and yeah. then there's like people eating at a table and it is, there's some interesting music in there. I don't I wonder how you made that music, but just garage band. Um, <laughs> Ah uh, well, I, you know I don't have a Mac, so it's always been kind of fascinating how people do all that in, in GarageBand. It seems like a all-encompassing device or software. But yeah. you know, for me, I just I, I still don't really generate much with a computer. I, I just put samples into it and uh, mix them down, basically. But hmm. um, you know that, that's that's what I remember. And, and even when I asked you, I was like, "What do you know? Is there a meaning to this?" And you said, "Well, you know, it's up to interpretation." And, uh, you know, that's kind of what I like about abstract work is that it could have a very deep meaning or it could just be these, these uh, surrealistic images that, you know, they they have no symbolism beyond the fact that they came out of someone's mind. Right. Or like and an, maybe my... somebody is being really open-minded when... Yeah, oh, I, got the, I, think, I think you're on the right track there. Just sort of like, it means something, but it's not something like that can be articulated otherwise like it's just something inside of you that f you feel like you can portray and maybe need to but it is but it's like not tied to anything in particular like except for me like i can say like my early experiences being fucked up by batman and never for christmas and other weird shit my parents would put on for me um but i, I think you the open mind thing i think you're on the right track there with what I was thinking, to some extent. Yeah, I, well, I, you, you have to be open-minded to, to certain things um, in order to, to have new ideas. I mean, yeah. you could just say all that, you know, everything is a flop, every idea that gets bad, so I'm just going to stick with what works or, or whatever. Um, it, it's, a, it's a hard balance because I've been, I've been very conscientiously trying to be minimal. All my, whatever, career, uh, I've been trying to just, push everything, you know, uh, push the limits of everything uh, with uh, the amount of layers that I can use and the amount of automation that I can use or, or whatever. And now I'm just trying to be like, okay, let's see, if I set this guideline, like I can only use four tracks, uh, what am I going to do with it, you know? Um, and, and sometimes that's the goal, it's just like seeing what happens. Yeah. Um. All right, well, I mean, I guess that about covers it for now. If you... Want to talk later? We can set up uh, whatever interviews of yours we're gonna play the next time. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. All right. Well, I'll talk to you. Thanks again for talking to me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Take care. See you. What's up with your show coming up? <laughs> uh, the show, it's a death metal show, first of all, at the Fifth Quarter Lounge in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's on Saturday, November 14th. 
Show starts at 7 o'clock sharp. <laughs> okay. And uh, what band? And it's hosted by Stoned Porcupine Productions. <laughs> yeah, is this your first uh, show under that title? Yeah. Well, it was, I noticed all the other ones, you know, it was always such and such promotions, such and such productions presents. So I'm like, well, fuck, I might as well come up with something. <laughs> and it seemed like a good one. So, And it was funny because on the old version of the page, a bunch of people were like, who the fuck is Stoned Porcupine Productions? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so it's just, it was just a title, a handle. And this is another, uh, uh, what's it called? Get along, gang. Reference, right? Or reference to your fan fiction that nobody on earth has read. <laughs> that's, exactly, that, that's exactly where it's from. <laughs> um, all right. So, who's playing at the show? Um, well, first up, we'll have uh, Chump Change, which is a one-off grind noise, old-school <laughs> AC-style band, featuring myself on guitar, um, Buddy from the band Drogheta on vocals. And their drummer, whose name I can't fucking remember right now. <laughs> I think it's Evan. Okay. Um, they're playing, and then after, or we're playing, I should say. Yeah. And then after <laughs> us, Negation will play, and that is the three instrumentalists from Radiation Sickness with the new vocalist. Oh, cool. And as far as I, actually, I think this will be their um, first first performance. Oh, nice. So, and they're playing. And then after them is Drogheta, and they're from, uh, God, where are they from? Doylestown, Ohio. It's up near uh, Cleveland, I think. Okay. And um, and they ended up on the bill because there was a span that day that I was going to book from Fort Wayne. And after an initial email, I never heard a fucking thing. Emailed them like three times, heard fucking nothing. I asked um, Kevin from Negation. I said, man, can you can you contact these guys? And he's like, he got hold of him. He's like, I think they just, I don't think they're just done. I mean, their band camp page is still up. So, but you know, they just broke up. It hasn't, what? They just broke up randomly. Apparently, I guess from what Kevin said, um, I guess one of the guys in the band, one of the guitar players, I guess he's playing for Hemdale, which is an old school death metal band. Anybody who fucking knows old school death metal knows who the fuck Hemdale is. And they got back together a couple years ago. Actually, Hemdell was one of the bands that was supposed to play at the uh, show that I tried to do when it was supposed to be just a metal festival before I decided to do a noise fest. Yeah. So, you yeah. Mean, uh, last year and in, uh, in uh, Columbus? Yep, the 2014 one. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, back to the scheduling. Well, um, after real, real quick, isn't wasn't Radiation Sickness supposed to be on the bill too, and then they broke up as well? Well, what happened was <laughs> <laughs> the three instrumentalists—they all split because they were tired of dealing with Doug and his ridiculous shit. So, but apparently, Doug claims that Radiation Sickness is still going, but it's just him and a drummer. What? There's no like. Yeah. Is he? He doesn't play guitar, does he? Fuck no. So it's just I don't think he's ever I don't think he's ever played any instruments. So it's literally just him screaming over drums. I don't know if they're doing anything at all because <laughs> I mean I don't know how the fuck they could because I mean he's not into noise. Yeah. You know, they, he he's claiming to have another death metal band and it's like, well, if it's just him and a drummer, then what the fuck are they going to do? 
I mean, let's say like a laptop or like a tape player or something playing the guitar riffs. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I will fucking say this, though, and you can put this in. I don't give a fuck. I don't care about saying it because it's sure. true. That motherfucker was such a fucking headache. I was really pissed off at him at first because I found out I didn't even know that those three guys had left the fucking band. <laughs> I was talking with Doug on one Facebook um, private message window, and I was talking with Kevin on another Mm -hmm. at the same time. And then, you know, Kevin's like, yeah, man, we left like fucking, at the time, I think it was like three months ago. (laughs) I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, he has never said nothing about that. And this tells you what kind of guy Doug is, okay? This motherfucker... He didn't even tell the people in his own band how much money they were getting. What? Yeah, because I told I told Kevin I said I'll pay you what I was going to pay you guys as radiation sickness, and he goes, he said Doug never said a goddamn word about any money. I thought like the show was unpaid or something. No, he I, from the way Kevin talks, um, Doug was basically just going to try and just pocket the cash. Oh, I guess Doug does. A, Doug does a lot of shady shit, apparently. I mean, he is a junkie, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, he's definitely that. I mean, for fuck's sake, dude. When you're going to a fucking show that, in a town you've never been in and you're asking complete strangers for drugs... Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I remember when he asked Pat, and Pat just kind of looked at him like... <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. But, okay... Back to the lineup, let's see. Right. Um, I mentioned Drogheda, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay, so after Drogheda is this band Faith Extractor from Cincy, and um, they're kind of a black death metal band. They're pretty good. They're one of the few bands, them and Nake were the only two bands that all the goddamn bands Doug was recommending that was worth a fuck. Because Doug likes pretty much anything, and it's like, <laughs> God damn, do you have any sense of quality control at all? Jesus Christ. Just whoever will talk to him, I guess. Do what? Just whoever will talk to him. Or just anything. He just, he just, I don't know. He just seems to like anything and everything. I'm like, God damn, dude, have some standards. Because <laughs> he would, he would ask, he'd ask about, about this band, and I'd look, look him up, hear him for about five minutes. I'm like, they suck. You know, <laughs> and this went on over and over and over. Huh. And then there was then then Nat and Faith Extractor. I checked them out, and I'm like, damn, these guys are actually really good. <laughs> so you know, yeah. And then after Faith Extractor, back to scheduling. After Faith Extractor, uh, then we'll have Hellwitch. And the um, time frame for the show will go like this: Chum Change and Negation will both play 30 minute sets. Drogheda just, and wait, Faith wait, Extractor wait. will play. Four. Sorry, Jump Change is playing 30 minutes? Yep, we're playing 30 minutes now. How? We're playing 15. But I said, fuck it, man. Once I decide... Well, see, the only reason we were playing 15 minutes was because I was just going to do vocals. Yeah. And um, I was like, fuck it, you know? And then that's when I asked Billy, you know, the smudge, if he was if he would play guitar and he's like well i'm not very good and i suck so i don't really want to you know i don't want to fuck you guys over and i'm well all right that's fine plus you know i'm not sure if he's coming out or not yeah you know because i mean it's not like he's playing the show right so that's a long drive then i exactly yeah drive all the way from fucking 
wherever the hell he's at in Wisconsin. I, I don't know if he's in Milwaukee still or not. Yeah. But, you know, drive all the way there to here, just, you know, just to fucking play for nothing. I mean, I told him I'd give him a little bit of money, but I didn't know what I'd be able to give him at all. Right. Because, you know, I'm paying all these other motherfuckers. And so what ended up happening was I basically put a notice on the event page, and I said, well, we need to find a guitarist. And then that's when, God, who was it? Kevin told me about this one guy, and um, and he's an old he was an old school motherfucker, man. He actually saw Anal Cunt when they played this fucking one garage show in Indianapolis in '89. They were supposed to play with Neurosis and Transgression, which was a local um, indie band, Indianapolis band, at, at, a, at a real club. Uh-huh. And it was you know during February, it was during the winter, and the roof caved in. <laughs> So I guess Neurosis said, fuck it, and they went on to the next show. And then AC were like, fuck it, man, we'll just fucking hang out in Indy. They played a free show at Dino's house in his garage. Then they went to Pittsburgh, played two shows at the Electric Banana, and then came back to Indianapolis and played another free show. Right. But this guy, though, that Kevin had told me about, he was at that Indianapolis gig. I'm like, oh, my God, (laughs) that's fucking insane, dude. Jesus. So you're but set. Then, oh, sorry, I was gonna say, what? Chump Change is just gonna be covers, right? Like you have. Nope, like, it was going to be covers. Jesus Christ, this show ne- never stops changing. <laughs> this this whole the saga of Chump Change is a long one. <laughs> I think the entire like this entire uh, seismic uh, to whatever show like it like this the the entire show you're putting on like the lineup has changed so many times. Your your lineup. For your band has changed so many times, and I don't know, like, what are you doing now with Chump Change? Okay, so what we're doing with Chump Change is originally what I was going to do when it was just going to be me, Billy, and Brian from Hell Witch. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just going to do just improv. <laughs> and then, okay, well, I can do improv a hell of a lot easier. Well, I can improv pretty much all three instruments. Okay. Although if I, play, if I did play drums, I would be pretty fucking bad (laughs) i'd be doing like really half-ass on the blast beat and shit but Mm -hmm. anyway we won't do that so but guitar though is a piece of cake vocals are a piece of cake but originally when it was going to be me and brian um i was going to do guitar and vocals at the same time and i was like dude i can't do this because i normally never do Mm mm-hmm and I tried practicing it a few times, and it just wasn't working. And I'm like, man, and I just told Brian, fuck it. We just won't do it. And Brian was bummed out about it. Pat was bummed out because he wanted to see it. You know, <laughs> he's like, I want, I want to check it out, man. I want to see if I can just go off. I'm like, I wanted to do it too, but I want to do it right. You know, people don't fucking get it about grind noise. They think it's all just a bunch of bullshit. And it's like, fuck you. I take this seriously. Mm-hmm. It's not a fucking joke. I hate fucking jokey fucking grind noise bands. They should all fucking be shot into the center of the sun. <laughs> Bastards. I hate that shit. All right, but so you've written songs <laughs> for this set? Um, no. We're going to improv it, <laughs> okay. but I've got a fuckload of I've got a fuckload of riffs of my own from past recordings and all kinds of shit and and I've already talked to um the drummer and guitar or, well, guitar, drummer and guitarist vocalist from Drogheda, and Buddy, the guitarist vocalist, he's going to do vocals, and then the drummer is going to do drums and vocals, 
and then I'll do guitar. I was thinking about maybe having them set me up a mic too, but I kind of thought about it. And I'm like, nah, I don't really need that. It's just going to get in the way. Oh, okay. Because well, I, I kind of played around with the idea at first, just maybe just throwing in some sporadic screams and you know shit here and there. But then I thought, nah, there's really no need to do that. Yeah, I thought because the entire point of tone with the drummer doing vocals and and then Buddy doing vocals on his own. Fuck, that's enough. That's plenty. Okay. So really, it's going to be kind of a. It's going to be like kind of early anal cunt meets early cripple bastards. Cripple <laughs> bastards were a band from Italy, okay. and they played early on as a two piece. Their drummer did vocals, the guitarist did vocals too. So it's kind of be, it'll be kind of a mixture between the two. Okay. Well, let's it, quickly move on to um, the last act, I guess, uh, is Hellwitch, right? Yep, Hellwitch. This will be. Oh, I wanted to mention that too. Okay. Um, Drogheda and Hellwitch, this will be both their first time playing in Indianapolis. Oh, cool. Yeah. I didn't realize that because I asked Buddy about that. I said, you, you never played in Indianapolis? He's like, no. He says, we've played in other places in Indiana, like Fort Wayne and stuff, but we've never played Indy. Hmm. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But they're not the first band to encounter that either. <laughs> but um, but Hellwitch, yeah. This will be the second time I've booked them overall, and obviously the first time I've booked them in a real club. Right. Because I, I told Pat last year. I mean, we already had this in motion before the Noise Fest even came around. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Where they played in a livestock auction barn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a live... What was it? A bingo hall, livestock auction hall, slash fucking uh, wedding reception hall. <laughs> People get married there? <laughs> Do what? People get married in that place? Mm-hmm. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just like a warehouse, basically. <laughs> well, they had, like... um I asked the chick about that when she said that, and they had, like, some uh, partition-looking things and shit, like I've seen at my mom's Elks Lodge, where she works, where they kind of spruce it up, you know, and it doesn't look so damn sparse. <laughs> okay, because, like, I remember the wall, I think the walls were pretty dirty, too, and, like, the lighting was really dingy, so, I mean, I guess if they have something... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to do, I don't know what they'll do about that, but, I, yeah, if they can pull it off, then uh, more power to them, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, is there anything else? I guess, uh, besides, uh, the show is $10, so there's that. Um, yep, $10, and starts at, oh, the do- doors open, um, doors open at 7. Okay, and the show starts so, at 8? No, 7.30. Oh, wow, okay, and it'll go till... Yeah, it's, um, se- show starts at 7.30 sharp, and ends right past midnight. Okay, cool. Oh, so that's not too bad. Because th- it was going to start at like 9 p.m. or something at one point, wasn't it? Yeah, because that's what the bar owner wanted to do. And I was like, I don't really think we can do that. Because, you know, I mean, that's the it's late for a lot of people to play. And I remember saying something to Pat, and he was like, whoa. He's like, we cannot do that. He said, we never play that late. Yeah, because they'd be starting at like midnight or something. Yeah. Um, and then that's when I and I said, well, you know what? I'm kind of glad you're saying this because then hopefully this will give me some more clout to push this back to where I wanted it. But the bar owner, her thing was like, well, people won't come out because it's an early show. I'm like, well, I, I have to do what I have to do to keep this going. Yeah, I mean, it's not like people are going to be like, oh, I missed the grind noise project. I'm not going to go. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Um, fuck it. I don't really think that many people's going to show up, no matter what. Tell you the oh. truth. I mean, I don't think it'll be as bad as what it was down here. <laughs> but if hustle. we get fifty people, yeah. I'll be surprised. Well, cool. Well, hopefully, we'll I'll help you uh, put up some flyers and stuff around Indy, wherever I am, which is probably one place. Yeah. But <laughs> and Kevin, um, he's been putting flyers up too. So oh, cool. We'll, we'll see what happens. All right. Well. Best of luck, and I guess I'll see you there in a couple weeks. Alrighty. Alright, talk to you then. Alright, bye bye. Alright, that was Laura from Ghosts of Dead Tables, and now Chump Change talking about the Seismic Slaughter 2015 show she's putting on at the Fifth Quarter Lounge in Indianapolis. I'm not sure if that's the name of her show or the name of Hellwitch's tour, but either way, it features Hellwitch, Faith Extraction, Drog- Drogetta, <laughs> Negation, and Chump Change. Unfortunately, not every metal font is as easy to read as Party Cannons. So go check that out, if for nothing else, to see... Laura Con- Laura from she's going to say her last name. So Laura from Ghost of Ted- Dead Tables performing her chump change set. It'll only be about the third or fourth time she performed live, and I think it's worth it to see her live at least once in your life because uh, she's pretty out there and fun. Uh, before that was obviously Arvo Zylo, who will be back. Will be back next week with uh, his interview, his older interview with Travis from Ono, which I highly suggest listening to. It's fucking crazy. It's long, but well worth listening to. And before Arvo was his track... Oh, there was no track. It was just an excerpt from the Assembly LP, which he described later on. It's the one with all the uh, guys blowing into horns in a meat locker. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And go back to last week to hear the Edgar Allan Poe cast, if you haven't already. We put a lot of work into it. I think it's really fun. Or just wait, pre-order the cassette. The cassette is coming, I swear, with a longer version of, with the full version of the Telltale Heart from Mother Horror. And, uh, what else is there? Go to the blog to see more from Marvel Zylo. You can check out both Lara and Arvo in my kind of documentary, Indiana Noise Fest 2014. I also have up there the video I synced up. It's a uh, the 1920s silent edition of The Wizard of Oz synced up with Arvo's score for it that he performed on WFMU out of New York. And just go for other shit, you know. Check out other stuff like my last-minute interview with Dan that he didn't know I was recording. Daniel Bernie, that is. He really, he's releasing a book on uh, Amazon coming up. And uh, he's got a cool little YouTube show going. Kittens Unicorn should be back this week with Do the Do for real this time. Life got in the way last week but should be happening. 
Uh, what else is there? Subscribe on iTunes if you like this sort of stuff. Make sure you hear the latest episodes. Follow the, the what do you call this? The podcast on Tumblr at UNUNPod. It's being run by Blurg, who is doing an insane job writing weird shit and keeping you updated. And uh, send us money through PayPal or whatever. Info's on the blog. Money will go toward, you know, all the bullshit paying people for their work when they're on the show. And uh, I'm not feeling it today, guys. Sorry. See y'all on Thursday, Friday, or next week. Okay, Boris, go away. Stop sniffing my armpit.